It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Spanish woman, who it turned out ultimately had deceived a U.S. fertility clinic about her actual age, had become the oldest woman to give birth. You might say, well, that's just a a miracle of modern science. Then the ethical question comes in about a woman who then dies two years later at the age of 69, leaving behind her two-year-old twins. Now, uh, she had been apparently uh, single for many, many years. She'd always wanted to have children. She went to the clinic and lied, saying that she was 55 years old, when in fact she was actually 66 years old, and uh, felt as if, you know, even though I've never had kids before at this age, I want to have kids, and I'm going to have them, without any real thought to what the consequences would be, let alone the notion of being, let's see, 80-something years old, raising teenagers. Oh, I don't think so. Now, this raises a lot of moral and ethical questions. That we have the technology to to do such things. And, and I, I want to say right up front, I, 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 I've known couples that have gone through the pain of infertility and the challenges and, and the heartache and what all of that means, and, and certainly do not want to deny anyone access uh, to the medical miracle that is available through many of these fertility clinics to be able to, to, uh, to have children. Um, and yet, I think sometimes in our in our rush to get what we want, we oftentimes overlook the bioethical questions. Joining me now to discuss this topic is Dr. Scott Ray. Um, he's a co-author, by the way, of a new book entitled Outside the Womb, Moral Guidance for Assisted Reproduction. He's also professor of Christian ethics and chair of the philosophy of religion and ethics department at Talbot Theological School. And um, Dr. Ray, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Well, Craig, it's my pleasure to be with you and uh, to tackle some of these questions. Well, what about this issue that, that we can and that we ought to? D- does this need to be part of the the discussion, the consideration when we look at anyone who's saying, gee, we've not been able to have kids, I've not been able to have kids, but always wanted them, here's this great technology, I'm going to go ahead and do it because I want it. Well, of, of course, just because we have a technology, nothing necessarily follows from that about whether we ought to use it. And I think you're right about the pain of infertility. And, I, and throughout this whole discussion, I don't want to you know, do anything that minimizes that pain because for couples who haven't been down that road, there, is, there are very few things in life that are more painful than infertility. I asked my wife. We, we faced this for about, about three and a half years. Uh, and then about five years ago, my wife had uh, breast cancer, double mastectomy, chemo, the whole nine yards. And I asked her which was worse, that whole bout with breast cancer or the in, bout with infertility. And without hesitation, she said infertility. Mm. And so there's, there's huge pain. It's very real. But in the pain, sometimes the, that, the, the pain and desperation cause us to put some really important moral questions.
I, and I sometimes, you know, I hear from couples routinely who say, you know, how come nobody told me that, you know, when they're at the end, end of the process? And yet it, it's a question I think that we need to wrestle with. I mean, thank God that we've been given the, the technology and the ability to, to answer a lot of these questions, to, to provide hope to infertile couples. And I, I think there is, there is genuine hope because th- there's, no, there's no reason to be a skeptic of technology on this because medical technology particularly, I think theologically, we ought to see that as God's good gift to help us alleviate the, the effects of the general entrance of sin, of which I take infertility to be one of them. So you, you see this that is something wholly compatible theologically, biblically. This is not, uh, as some might say, you know, intruding to the degree at which we're playing God. No, I, I don't think that's true, because uh, if, if infertility is a result of the general entrance of sin into the world, which I think is a you know, it's pretty clear to show that, then we are simply using technology for one of its God-ordained purposes. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that every use of the technology is morally justifiable. But as a general rule, I don't think we have to take what I would call more of a Roman Catholic position that uh, is very skeptical about virtually all technology related to infertility. I don't think that's required from a distinctly Christian world. Right, but, but on a grander scale, perhaps, we might view this then from, from maybe more of a an evangelical standpoint to say that as much as we would not um, frown upon someone who used medical technology to uh, cure an illness or a disease, we would say, gee, God has blessed us with the ability to be able to eradicate polio, to say that polio is a, is a direct result of, of man's sin condition or our, our, our um, you know, the fact that we live in a fallen world, I think, is a truism to suggest that, and therefore we have to kind of, you know, take the punishment that's metered out to us without any effort toward trying to alleviate pain and suffering associated with a disease or an illness that could be cured, would, would, I think most of us would argue would be foolhardy. And right. so you're suggesting that in some respects, then, utilizing this technology to resolve a problem of infertility for a couple that wishes to bear and, 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 and raise children would be perhaps no more morally different than it would be to say that we're going to use uh, a particular medicine or a, a treatment to, to cure an illness or a disease. Well put. No, that's precisely true. And it doesn't matter that the, the, the technology to cure heart disease cr- doesn't create new life, right? Right, it because, spares life. Right, because the, the reproductive system was designed to create new life. And so we're using technology to either correct a, a defect in the system, or even to buy, even to bypass the system is okay, because we use medical technology to bypass, you know, our kidneys, for example, when we use dialysis. That doesn't fix anything. It just bypasses a diseased kidney, and we say and that's okay too. Now there are that. That's not to say that there aren't some limits on what you can do with this. 
And I can certainly hear some people in their own mind saying, okay, well, from there, it maybe is not very far of a leap to move into things like cloning. Let's talk about that when we come back in a moment. Uh, it's a conversation that I know some will find uh, difficult and painful, and I want to underscore what Dr. Ray said at the very get-go, and that is that this is not intended at any level to be any sort of a accusation or an indictment toward uh, uh, couples that choose to use the, the medical miracle that is available to them uh, in the arena of medicine to help address um, issues related to infertility. I, I guess it comes down to the question of what kind of questions do we need to uh, ask ourselves related to what the, the moral guidelines ought to be regarding all of this. We'll come back to more of that part of the equation as uh, we continue our conversation tonight with Dr. Scott Ray. I'm Craig Roberts. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Joining me tonight, Dr. Scott Ray. We're talking about the bioethical questions related to um, fertility or so-called assisted reproduction. And uh, to what degree ought there to be limits or guidelines? And again, underscoring the reality of the pain of infertility that, that so many countless couples go through. Um, I, I think we pretty well established, Dr. Ray, that it's a good idea, that it is not anything that runs contrary into uh, biblical teaching to say that we, we should uh, not use this. In fact, that we can use it. Then it comes down to, I guess, some of the bioethical questions of, of where the limits ought to be. And any discussion of this topic, I think, most naturally has to include, I'll get to it before the callers do, uh, the octomom, uh, Nadia Suman. Yes. Uh, well, her her situation, I think, is irresponsibility at a number of levels. And her situation can actually be avoided. And this is one of the things that couples ought to avoid at all costs. And that is you, you never implant more embryos than a woman can safely carry uh, or the number of children they want to raise uh, so that you don't ever have to be tempted to selectively reduce the number of pregnancies. See, uh, the reason Octomom's a problem is because God, God didn't intend women to carry litters of children. Uh, and so, she's put, I mean, she was put at risk herself. The children were put at risk by having so many of them in at one time. It's a, I mean, it's a miracle that they were delivered successfully. But m- most uh, major multiple pregnancies like that, they have a myriad of health problems due to being born months premature. That, that's one, I think, limit. No selective termination of pregnancies. A second one is kind of on the other end of this, and this is for many of these fertility techniques where fertilization takes place in the lab as opposed to in the body. I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, but frequently, in order to get the biggest bang for the buck out of your money, you need to harvest as many eggs as possible, fertilize as many as possible, and the ones you don't immediately implant are frozen and put into storage. And, you know, for couples who use, end up using all of those, there's no problem. But say a couple has, you know, triplets on their first try, and they have five embryos left in storage. Well, those are five of their children that are in storage. And the, the general principle, I think, that every, that every couple who goes down this road has to adhere to is that every embryo you create in the lab deserves an opportunity to be implanted to come to maturity. 
And I say if the, if the couple doesn't have the stomach for that, then they probably shouldn't go down this road because throwing away embryos at the end of in vitro fertilization is the moral equivalent of selectively aborting pregnancies if you get pregnant with more with too many. What about this argument that says, well, you know, this is kind of a bit of a gamble here, that we're, we're not sure which one is going to take, this is involved, this is expensive, and so therefore the reason why they tend to, um, to create more than perhaps ultimately necessary, and then all of a sudden we're left with this other moral dichotomy of, well, we, we've been able now to conceive and have a child what do we do with the un, quote unquote unneeded embryos? Right now, there's, I think there's a couple of things that you can do with the quote unneeded ones. One is the the best option is for the couple who who are the genetic parents of those embryos to implant them themselves. Uh, it's also, I think, acceptable. But I would say it's not quite as good an option. It's also acceptable to put those embryos up for adoption and donate them to another infertile couple. Uh, that I think that's okay. Uh, in fact, I think that's a really good way to do adoption. Um, and so that's okay. Well, I think what's not acceptable would be to discard the embryos or to donate them to research, which involves their destruction, or to just sort of be ambivalent about it and keep them in storage indefinitely. I think that's a problem, too, because you're just, that mess, you're just not making a decision about it. So how do you go about how do you go about ascertaining then, doctor, when too much is too much? Well, what I what we advise couples to do is to draw draw your lines and determine where you're going to stop before you start the process at all, uh, because you may you may stop because of money. You may stop because of some moral concerns. You may stop just because, you know, this is just going too far for some couples. Um, I'm not sure there's a specific, you know, point at which everybody has to stop. Uh, what I would be careful of is that the longer you're involved in different infertility treatments that are unsuccessful, the more desperate couples tend to become. And that's why I think it's really important that you figure out where you're going to stop before you start so that the desperation that sets in doesn't end up clouding a couple's judgment. A lot of these clinics, um, they do this for a profit. This is really big business. It is. And for them, you know, whether it's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, really doesn't matter. In fact, it, in one respect, it does matter because they, for them it's ching, ching. And so... Many of the purveyors of this wonderful technology that are looked upon as sort of the, 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 the guardian angels, the heroes for the infertile couple, are, are offering no, no moral compass, no guidance here, no, no set in, uh, of, of instructions or direction. And, and therefore, I suspect, boy, it really becomes incumbent and then upon the couple to, in the case of believers, to really seek God's face on this because you're not going to get much guidance to say, you know, stop, that's it, no more, as the fertility clinic, we don't. We, we think you've gone too far. That's I mean, right. if that were the case, the Octomon situation right. would never have transpired. Now, that's a fair assessment, I think, that uh, the, these clinics, you know, advertise themselves as giving the gift of life, which is a bit of a, an exaggeration. 
but they, they are in business to make money. And the couple needs to know that. I think the couple needs to be empowered to know that if the clinic doesn't want to play ball with what they value as important, that, hey, this is business, and you, you know, you go pick up, you know, pick up your ball and go home. Uh, and go to the next clinic. Uh, because, you know, if you make, if you make your values clear, they will, they, I mean, they'll either adhere to them or not, but you'll, but you'll know it, and they'll probably try and talk you out of your values. Uh, so they'll, I mean, they'll tell you that, you know, financially, it's just, it's very bad advice to try and limit the number of embryos that you create. Um, and they're, financially, they're probably right about that. But, at, you know, at what price do you end up with a huge moral conundrum, which, I mean, this, I mean, Craig, this keeps couples awake at night for months and months. Well, and could it be argued here that in some cases, at least in the moral uh, plane, that many of these couples are being taken advantage of? There's a sense that, they're, as you say, they're, they're, they're kept awake at night by this. They are... They are Sometimes I think struggling with the quandary of, you know, God, what did we do wrong? Why us, Lord? And I think those are, are certainly valid questions. And, and so yet as they're sort of fighting through, struggling through many of these questions, that in comes a fertility clinic, and they're, they're the answer to their prayer. And again, with no moral compass to be offered, can really ultimately prey upon a lot they of these can. people, can't they? They can. And I think that, you know, a lot of the clinics act uh, with, good intentions and they treat the couples well but it's it's not it's not hard to see the potential for exploitation when you have a, a very profitable business in combination with couples who are increasingly desperate to realize their dreams and have a child mm. we're talking today about uh, the moral challenges related to infertility um, again some wonderful developments in technology that are now available to us uh, the question is, how do we go about structuring this in the confines of good, solid biblical theology? What is that moral compass, that moral guidance for assisted reproduction? Our conversation tonight with Dr. Scott Ray continues from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our visit with Dr. Scott Ray. By the way, his book, Outside the Womb, Moral Guidance for Assisted Reproduction, which uh, uh, he co-wrote with uh, Dr. Joy Riley, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, uh, published by Moody. You can also get it, of course, through Amazon.com. Dealing with a lot of the, the moral and uh, theological challenges, the questions that arise. Um, you know, we're, we're given access to this wonderful technology by the grace of God. How do we use it without abusing it? What ought to be the guidelines? What are the bioethical questions that come to mind? And, and, and toward that end, as you have researched for this book, Doctor, give me what you would think, for the benefit of those eavesdropping on our conversation today, give me what you would think would be some of the key questions the parents that are, are are dealing with the issue of infertility need to be asking themselves as they consider potentially going down this path. Good. That's, that's a good question, and that sort of helps to summarize what the guidelines are. First, they need to know, you know, what, is there an identifiable medical problem? Okay. Second, they need to know, uh, does in, do, do infertility treatments require a third-party contributor, such as an egg donor, sperm donor, or a womb donor, or a surrogate mother. Um, and then third, does the, do, does the infertility treatment involve 
leftover embryos, or selective termination. And those, those are really important questions that unearth the guidelines. I think the scripture is really clear that uh, procreation takes place within the context of a stable, permanent, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. And I think, I think the scripture looks really skeptically at uh, third-party contributors who would enter into the matrix of marriage for procreative purposes. All right, let's talk about that, because there, again, can be huge, huge money there, whether we're oh. talking about surrogate mothers, oh. things of this sort. And oftentimes we'll hear these horror stories where, you know, they got involved in this, they really didn't stipulate what the guidelines or terms of engagement ought to be up front, and then all of a sudden at the backside, uh, the surrogate mother decides after carrying this child for you know, uh, nine months to term decides, you know what, I think I'm going to keep it. Now, you know, certainly having an attorney at the beginning of all of this is not a bad idea, but that, that really complicates all of this, doesn't it? It can, and especially because we are outsourcing surrogacy today to other parts of the world where the, those complications increase sometimes exponentially. And couples have actually had tr- trouble getting their babies out of the country. They've, they've been exploited by uh, corrupt physicians and government officials. Uh, so there's there's potentially a mess involved. What we tell couples who need a sperm or an egg donor is I think there's a better option. What we tell them is we encourage them to consider adopting embryos. Uh, and if you have your, have your listeners Google uh, the Snowflake program when they get next to a computer, uh, it's down here in Southern California. I suspect there's one in the Bay Area, too. Uh, it's an embryo adoption program where couples uh, can have the experience of pregnancy and childbirth, but it doesn't require a sperm donor or an egg donor, which can leave one of the two, whoever, whoever's getting pinch hit for uh, in procreation, leaves them feeling alienated and out of the process. I sat with a couple, uh, this was a couple years ago, and she was beaten on the poor her poor husband to get a sperm donor, and he was really uncomfortable with the idea. And I suggested that they adopt embryos because it gave them almost everything that they valued in terms of being pregnant, giving birth. All those were really important to her. Uh, and I think generally that's a that's a good option for couples who are considering a sperm or an egg donor. A surrogate, I think, is a little bit different. And I, what I tell couples on that is be prepared for the surrogate to be part of your life for the foreseeable future. And if you're not, if you don't have the stomach for that, then I'd suggest not going down that road. But I think those, are, those, are, those add additional complications. And I would say, too, to your listeners, you may have college age or young adult listeners who are considering donating their eggs for sometimes for very big dollars um, for a you know for an infertile couple that has that has substantial risks medically and I would never advise uh, a woman in her college age you know years or in her early 20s to uh, to donate her eggs for another infertile couple no matter how much money's involved there's too much risk involved and on the other end of these things again as i began our conversation tonight doctor with a story about this woman from spain who who uh, delivered uh, twins at the age of 66 and sadly was dead 2 years later uh, leaving these poor children uh without a parent 
Um, ought we to also take into consideration sort of what, what are, are the, the norms here, meaning that, you know, God, I believe, uh, has designed a certain period of time for, for fertility on purpose. And the fact that we can bypass that, in a sense, in order to get what we want may not always be in the best interest of ourselves or most, I think, predominantly, ultimately, the children. I think, yeah, you're right. Escaping menopause, I think, is generally a bad idea. Uh, And the the system is ripe for abuse. I would never have a patient uh, as an infertility patient, a woman over the age of 50. Uh, And I would would require that they, you know, show me a birth certificate to prove their age. Uh, And I would, you know, the fact, the idea that we, you know, have a 67-year-old woman giving birth to a child and orphaning those twins two years later is unconscionable. Uh, This is, is, I think, an an example where the technology is also a curse. Indeed so. Uh, Finally, Doctor, folks that are struggling with this, uh, clearly a book like yours, a great sound place to get some advice. Uh, Is this something that people ought to feel free, comfortable with, and in discussing with their pastor? Oh, absolutely. I think they probably should be prepared, though, that their pastor may not have a lot of training in dealing with this. He he, he or she can deal with the the pastoral side of infertility, but may not have the background to deal with the moral side. I think our churches ought to be talking about this more frequently so that infertile couples in our churches, which statistically one in six couples of childbearing age are technically infertile in the United States. So that's a lot of folks, and a lot of them are in, are in our churches. But they need, to ha- they need to have some discussion about this in our churches so that they're not caught off guard when they get involved in some of these treatments. Indeed so. And, you know, as you say, with such a large percentile, uh, this is a topic whether or not the pastor is dealing with it or feels prepared to adequately deal with it. Uh, you know, they're sitting in your church, Pastor. We appreciate the time. Dr. Scott Ray, a look at Outside the Womb, Moral Guidance for Assisted Reproduction. The book, again, is published by Moody Press and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as at Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think of a lot of the challenges that our nation has been facing for the last couple of three years, um, you know, unemployment situations, uh, loss of homes because of a foreclosure, uh, you know, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly to kind of live in that that place that's sort of permanent disappointment. And yet out of all of that, particularly for Christians, how do we we be uh, sort of adequately rise up and, and, and above all of that so we can go on with life and, and enjoy victory in our relationship with Christ? Well, that topic uh, centers around the title of a new book written by my next guest. Uh, you'll recognize her as having been the uh, Emmy Award winning co-host of Aspiring Women on uh, KTLN here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's written a number of best-selling books, in fact, over 30 to her credit, including her latest, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. And Michelle McKinney-Hammond, Michelle, great to have you on the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Boy, this is uh, this is a timely topic. So many people are just dealing with that kind of overall biting sense of disappointment of what's going on. They've, you know, Life can be tough enough, and then when you add to it the economy and so on and so forth, yes. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in that place and they don't know how to get out. Yes, yes. Because they begin to see cycles in their lives, and it, it leads to the, to the 
deception that this is all life has to offer and well I should just settle in and, and not expect more than where I am and then we begin to to make choices that sink us even lower in, into that place you know and then I wonder, as that process is kind of taking place, um, if there needs to be a change in our thinking. You know, I think there are some Christians who who move into that position of defeat and disappointment, and they kind of, you know, kind of conclude that it's here, it's here to stay. So I have to learn to live with disappointment, right? As opposed to learning from disappointment and then moving on back into victory, right? Because every disappointment, you know, a friend of mine um, all describes disappointment as a disappointment, uh, in the sense that we make appointments in life for ourselves, decisions of, of what should be or how things should go. And when the other people don't meet us there, the other parties involved don't meet us there, we feel dissed, we feel um, cast off, um, and it just really invites a spirit of rejection that lowers our self-esteem and, and literally paralyzes us. Um, so that we do get stuck, as you said. And a lot of it, I think, then comes down to misguided expectations. I mean, let's think for a moment about people. How often do we live in that position of disappointment because our son, our daughter, our husband, our wife, uh, our parents uh, did something or behaved in a fashion that disappointed us, and now all of a sudden we're, we're kind of stuck in that defeat position? Yeah, yeah. It's true, and, and, and you know, life is, is a greater thing than that, and so we really cannot base uh, how, the conclusions that we make on life based on what people did or didn't do. It has to be come from a, a deeper place. That's why I use the, uh, the woman at the well um, as an example um, in this book, How to Get Past Disappointment, because she had been through a cycle of disappointments that led her to the conclusion that that was all life had to offer for her. And, and the danger in that is that when we get so jaded by our disappointments, we can't recognize the blessing when it does present itself. And, you know, what's amazing about that story is that um, e- even as, as Jesus meets with her, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we, I think, sometimes think that we can kind of hide that. We try to mask those feelings mm-hmm. instead of coming to the terms with them or instead of dealing with the root cause of what is behind the disappointment and sometimes the role that we play because maybe we've gotten our eyes focused more on the person or the situation instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe as we're you know, kind of trying to keep up fronts, you know, keep up appearances, and yet Jesus fully knows what's going on, doesn't he? He does, you know, and, and, and what I think is important for, for listeners to know is that despite your bad choices, um, your seeming failures, or even uh, the contributions you think you've made to your life being the way you are, Jesus makes an appointment with all of us. I mean, Jesus went to that well to meet that woman on purpose. It was a purposeful decision to be there that day when she got there. Um, and I think that he... Um, is just as purposeful with meeting us in those places of disappointment. He has an appointment to meet us there, um, to show us another way, to show us another wellspring, another area of fulfillment um, that will bring about uh, what we've been thirsting for. I don't think that she even realized how deep her disappointment was until he started pushing her buttons and uh, getting her to see that there was an option. You know, so many people that I talk to who are disappointed feel they don't have any other option. 
Um, I was just talking to um, a friend of mine the other day on the phone in uh, another failed relationship, and she said, well, here I am alone again, um, and I don't think I'll ever have anyone. I said, well, maybe you don't have anyone today, but don't feel that because that person rejected you that you have no options. You have options. And as a matter of fact, uh, we exercise those options every day. I mean, I always tell single people, you're alone because you want to be alone, because there are people that you de- decided that you did not want to have in your life. Mm. You know, so don't don't say that you know. Oh, you 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 are the helpless person in this. No, you've had options that you chose not to exercise. So you are single by choice. How to get past disappointment, finding hope. The title of her new book, newly published again by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com, as well as through Bay Area Christian bookstores and bookstores overall. Uh, Michelle, as we talk about uh, sort of realigning our, our expectations, talk to me about the process of moving from from fear to hope in in the backdrop of dealing with circumstances, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes beyond our control. But nevertheless, how do we go about making that transition from fear to hope? Well, it really is taking, taking our eyes off of what we consider the source to seeing the root of the issue because the disappointments in our lives are really the fruit that emanate from a root. And I, I think that a lot of times we live on the surface and, and we only deal with what we see versus what we don't see. Uh, when we look at the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find out that the issue was deeper than her desire to be loved by these men. It really was a great need for God. Almost a crying uh, out in a sense. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, she was trying to fill a void uh, with the, to the best of her ability with something that was natural not knowing that what she needed was supernatural. Um, and, and, and it's very interesting because there's a very subtle uh, conversation that happens uh, when she tells Jesus, you know, this water that you're talking about, I want it because I'm tired of being thirsty and I don't want to have to come back here again. And I think that a lot of us are that way. We're tired of longing, and we don't want to keep revisiting the same issue over and over again in our lives. And he says, I'll give it to you, um, you know, go and get your husband and now we get down to, to the nitty-gritty of confessing where we really are. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, I mean, she probably had been saying she had a husband. She was living with a man, according to the Scripture. And he says, you've told the truth. And he congratulates her on it. He says, you've done well to tell the truth. So um, we know that the Word says that the truth is what makes us free. It gives us the tools we need to, to get beyond where we are. And uh, so he congratulates her, he's very gracious with her, and says it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not yours. So what he was bringing up was, here's this cycle that you've had in your life, and, and you, you've had five, five, six men, and you're still thirsty. You know, what have we continued to do and still felt the same longing, the same disappointment? even though we thought we were applying solutions to our, to our longings and desires. And I think that the light went on in her head, because even though she perceived him to be a prophet, the question that she asked him was not about the men. It wasn't about, will those relationships work out? It was, how could she get to God? Because obviously the men had never been enough. And I think that what God is saying to all of us in the middle of our disappointments is, 
Look to me so that I can show you the source of fulfillment. Look to me so I can give you the wisdom to find a better way to exercise different options in your life that bring about the victory that you desire. And, you know, you put it so well, because so often this ends ends up being a product of having put our trust, our faith, our hope and desire on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, most definitely. And, and he must be. You know, he says, I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And then he says something even more spectacular. He says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I am your exceeding and great reward. And the reward is the pleasure of being in my company, because when I come into your life, I bring everything that you've been looking for, and all of those solutions are found in me. He, he's the one who gives us the wisdom uh, to, to gain the things that he knows we want. He's not opposed to us having what we want, but he wants to add what we need to the ball game too. No. And sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think that... Uh, that woman didn't even know why. We don't know, you know, the, the inside scoop on all those relationships. It, it, he said she had had five husbands. So if he said five husbands and then differentiated that the one she was with was not hers, that means she le- had five legitimate husbands. What happened to them? Did they divorce her? Did they abuse her? Did they leave her? Did they die? We do not know. But out of it came a vow, obviously, that she was not going to put herself in the position to be disappointed again and she made a bad choice she made a choice that she thought would put her in the position of power by simply living with someone so that she could not be abandoned again and we do that we, we prop ourselves up and we begin to make compromises that we think are guarding our hearts but it really puts us in the position for greater pain we appreciate so much uh, michelle the insights i know a lot of this comes from your own life experience, and, and I'll let readers get a copy of the book to uh, to get more details on that. Meanwhile, again, um, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, published by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com and certainly at uh, Bay Area bookstores. Also information on the web at MichelleHammond.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, MichelleHammond.com. Michelle, thanks again so much for your time. 